Are y'all telling each other about your resolutions? Is that why it's taking so long? How many of you gave up on resolutions years ago? Let me see your hands. Yeah, yeah. You're just like first service, a bunch of quitters. I mean, why? I mean, wise, wise people. That's what I meant. Did I say quitter? I meant wise. I meant wise. Um, you know, last week we began by praying for some people in our church body, and it feels like that at times uh, life can be fairly relentless. And maybe you know some people like that as well. I chat with a, a, one of our families in the church body at the end of first service who lost, uh, gentleman lost both, both of his parents in the last two weeks. Um, uh, Sean Anthony is with us online. She's in the chat room there as well. And uh, her uncle passed away uh, this past week. Um, if, if you're dealing with sickness in your family or uh, a sense of grief, um, you are in good company because there are many in our church that are dealing with that as well. And even some, uh, some health issues that just feel like they won't go away. And so why don't we begin again with that kind of prayer and just... Uh, why don't we come together as one body and, um, and hold each other up. Lord, we come to you in prayer because we believe uh, that you listen and that you are close to the brokenhearted and that you are present when we grieve and when we hope and when we doubt and when we feel like giving up. And there are many in our church family who are dealing with all manner of uh, stress and fear and anxiety and uh, maybe even a, a loss of hope. And so we come together linking arms, spiritually speaking, and, uh, and we hold each other up, knowing and believing that we are not alone not just in our difficulty or pain or struggle, but we're not alone in that. Uh, there are many of us in this body that are uh, stronger than we feel at this moment and are willing to uh, hold us up even though we, we feel like we might fall. And so, Lord, uh, we ask that you would give us the courage to be the answer to some of these very prayers, whether it's compassion or uh, generosity or some expression of love, and we believe that you'll call uh, to our mind a name or two or some folks that might need a bit of encouragement that we would uh, make a phone call or send a text or uh, just give some expression of kindness to. But Lord, we ask these things and we pray prayers like this, um, knowing that you are the only place for us to take needs of this uh, severity and gravity. And we do so because you are a good God and you love us and you promise to be with us and never leave us or forsake us. And so we stand firm and strong on that truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say together, amen. Well, if you have given up on uh, making resolutions is because you have decided that you're tired of disappointing yourself in some ways. And you know that maybe that is not the best way for you to find a way forward or a path. And even in this series, Restart, this is, this is the hope that we need to find a path forward. Uh, whatever's going on in our culture or our world or our little world, and that path forward 
cannot wait on our circumstances to change. We've been waiting on our circumstances to change. There's been hope that things would change. There's been hope that we would, you know, turn the corner, whatever issue it is in our life, but we have to move forward regardless. And so as we do that, these verses kind of gave us a bit of a, a way forward last week, and we'll use them for a few weeks. Here's what it says in Hebrews, uh, letter to the Hebrews in our New Testament, chapter 12, couple of verses. So, and, and it could be that you resonate with a few words in, in the, these couple of verses. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees and mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. That's why we pray the way we pray. It's why we encourage one another. It's why we decide we'll walk together instead of alone. Um, it's why we gather, whether you're in this room or online, and decide to be socially distant because of uh, numbers or uh, being immune compromised or whatever it is. This is who we are and why we do what we do. And we do this because when it feels like there's not an end in sight, fatigue sets in. And when we get tired, when we feel fatigued, we give up hope. And when we give up hope, we lose our way. And all of these things seem to compound during times like this. Years ago, my brothers and I, we hiked up Mount Democrat, you know, one of our 14 years here in the state. And we had moved here, uh, you know, 16 years ago. My brothers came out to visit me and we, we thought, let's, let's, let's tackle one of these. So we hiked up Mount Democrat and we'd studied a bit, read a bit about the hike. And one of the unique features of Mount Democrat is that it has a false summit. You probably don't need that explained to you, but I'm going to anyway, because I'm a preacher and that's what we do. So... <laughs> The false summit is this, this crest, and it looks like it's the top, and it's not the top. And so we'd read about it, and we said, okay, there's a false summit. So we said to each other, hey, did you read that? There's a false summit. And we said, yeah, what's that? And so we articulated that. So you know what that means is we're going to be on this hike, and we're going to look up, and we're going to see, and it's not going to be the top, but it's going to look like the top, but it's not the top. And so we said, yeah, we need to remember that. And so about two-thirds of the way up Mount Democrat, the rest of the mountain sort of disappears, and it's hidden behind this false summit. And we knew about false summit, had read about it, reminded each other about the false summit, but you still look up and you see this summit and you think, that's the summit. It's gotta be the summit. I mean, there's nothing behind it. How can you hide a 14er? You can't hide a 14er. And so we would look and we think that's the false summit. They said there would be one, that must be it. And we saw it. And then when you begin to get near that false summit, you can see the summit start to peek over that false summit and you think, oh, that can't be. That's really far away. I think I see a person up there, but it doesn't look like a person. It looks like a little, I don't know, ant or something. That can't be the summit. And then you finally crest that false summit and you see the mountain. And even though you know there's a false summit, it is the most discouraging feeling in the world. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you false summited this pandemic? And you thought, you thought, you know what? I mean, it's, it's, it's over, right? When we did the beginning, we thought it was six weeks and done. And then, you know, we, we keep pushing out the goalpost, if you will, and this false summit. And if you, if you aren't careful, you will lose hope and you will become weary and you will become fatigued and then you will, you will lose your way. And so what we want to do is with our tired hands and our weak knees, we want to mark out a straight path. We need a straight path. Scriptures will help us do that. Some stories that we'll dig in over the next several weeks. We need a path. Because if, if we don't know the path, then we're going we're gonna to get weary. 
Even if we know the path, we're still going to get weary. And we need to be reminded and we need to know because without a straight path, we will lose our way. So back in September, the Quad Cities brought back their marathon. You know, during the middle of COVID, they canceled it. it it's, a, it's a kind of an important marathon. It's, it's a big deal. You know where the Quad Cities are. You know, just drive west from Chicago a couple hours, you'll find yourself in the Quad Cities. And, and it's a unique marathon. It's not the biggest in the country. It's not the fastest in the country at all. But it is kind of an important one. It's, it's a Boston qualifier, so that's kind of a big deal. But it's also kind of unique. The, the Quad Cities Marathon runs, as you might imagine, through the Quad Cities. But that means it's in two different states. And so it's kind of unique. It also crosses the Mississippi River three different times. Three bridges that they run on. And it is in this way, you know, something that a lot of people enjoy. And, and so they took it away during COVID, of course, but they brought it back in September, brought it back again. And uh, the, the winner in September is this, this gentleman right here. He's crossing the line. His name's Tyler Pence. What's unique about Tyler, uh, a lot of things, he, he ran a personal best when he ran the marathon. He ran the, the Quad City Marathon this, this, you know, just a few months ago, you know, five, six months ago in two hours and 15 minutes. That's impressive. It's a personal best for him. It's pretty incredible. He is the track and field coach at the University of Illinois in Springfield. Uh, he also coaches cross country. And, you know, so this was a, a big, big win for him. What is also unique about his win is he did not lead the race for very long. For the best portion of the race, it was led by a couple of Kenyans. Now, if you know much about marathon races and, and bests and world records, they're held by mostly Kenyans and Ethiopians. They're very fast and, uh, and run with a, just a relentless speed. In fact, the two Kenyans that led this race, they were on track, possibly. You know, you never know early in the race, but at least midway through the race, they were on track for a world record, which is just a shade ahead of two hours, which meant that at that time, um, poor Tyler here, he was probably, I don't know, 12, 13 minutes behind the two leaders in the race. In other words, he couldn't see them. They were that far ahead. And at some point in the race, after a good portion of the race, these two Kenyans, they made a wrong turn. Right, I know. <laughs> They made a wrong turn. They actually followed a bike that was being a pace setter in the race. The bike turned mistakenly, and so did the two Kenyans. And not very long after that, Tyler Pence crossed the finish line to win his first marathon, two hours and 15 minutes. Kenyans were mad. You could imagine that they were mad. They said, you know, they cried foul and unfair and all of that sort of thing. And the race organizers, in fact, the race, the chairman of the race committee is quoted in all sorts of news sources. And this is what he said about the whole thing. He said, well, we understand that the, the, the pace setter made a mistake. Pace setter made a mistake. But the course is well marked. And not only is the course well marked, there were volunteers on the course that were waving and pointing and trying to get their attention when the bike made a wrong turn. And not only that, 
But the day before the race, all of the elite runners who even have a chance at winning this, they come out and they do the whole course. They don't, they don't run it, of course, but they, you know, bike it or ride along most of it. And they see all the turns, all the twists, where are we going over the bridge, where are we coming back, how do we get to the finish line? They did all of that the day before. So we're disappointed. It was $3,000 purse Tyler walked away with. But the course was well marked. How many times in the last couple of years have you made a wrong turn? Because you got an email, because you got some news you didn't want, because you engaged in a conversation. Maybe you engaged in a debate on social media. Those work out well, don't they? (laughs) Because you decided to make something that isn't the main thing, the main thing. And you found yourself, well, there was a path that was marked out for you and you didn't find your way to it. You found your way away from it. We want to mark out a straight path as we begin this year. We just have the fortune of the calendar turning and giving us a chance to think about new beginnings. And so we need a straight path. But why do we need a straight path? This is important. We need a straight path so that, um, for our feet so that we know where to go. But for this reason, so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. That's why. Because on any given day, I'm weak and lame, and I need your help to remind me what matters most and keep things that matter, the main things, central and focused in my life. Because I don't know about you, but I can get distracted. I can see something shiny or see something aggravating or see something irritating or see something that makes me angry, and it can pull me away from the things that matter most as quickly as anything. And some days you're weak and lame and you need me to come alongside and we need each other so that we can mark out a straight path and focus on the things that matter. Scriptures will help us do that and they're pretty plain and pretty simple and we'll take some time with uh, some of these passages over the coming weeks. One of the first that we'll dig into is in Luke 10. We'll do it this week and next week because it, uh, well, both subjects demand a bit of time. This is how it begins in Luke 10 for our passage today. There was a day that an expert in religious law, a Pharisee more than likely, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. And this is the question. In fact, let's just all say this question together. Are you ready? Say it with me. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. And it's an important question. And it's a question that we all ought to ask and answer and deal with and struggle with and and discuss with one another. You you might not ask it this way, but this gets gets asked several times in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is a unique way to ask it, but not that unique in Jesus' day and time. This is what rabbis and people who focused in on religious things, these are the things that they wrestled with and debated And Jesus knows he's being tested. It's not hidden. It's not cloaked. But he's going to engage in this conversation with this man. And this happens, like I said, several times in the Gospels. Sometimes it's asked this way. Sometimes it's asked with this phrase. Matthew 22. One of them, an expert in the law, very similar, tested him with this question. In fact, let's say this question together as well. This is a different way. Say it with me. Teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Same question, really. And it's about this larger picture. 
this question that we're going to wrestle with today and that anybody who's reading scripture or trying to live a life or sort through your priorities or your ethics or your values or maybe raise kids so that they you know, eventually become independent and thoughtful, contributive citizens that know their worth and know their purpose, all of that. The question is this, what matters most? That's the question. And this question is worth asking and worth wrestling with. And in almost every occasion, it seems that this is the question that people are wrestling with in the gospels when they say, well, how, how do I inherit eternal life? Or what is the greatest commandment? It's this pursuit that matters most. Now, sometimes when this discussion happens with Jesus in the Gospels, he gives the answer. Sometimes instead of giving the answer, he asks another question. All of them point to the same truth. It, there's one occasion that's a little bit different. Maybe you're familiar, the rich young ruler. He asks, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and that discussion that Jesus has with him kind of takes a long way around the barn, but it ends up in the same place. It's a very interesting conversation. But you would think that on all of these occasions that this seems to be the thing that they're driving at. What matters most? Seems obvious that this is the question that they're wrestling with. Except this isn't the question they're wrestling with at all. In fact, it's the furthest thing from most of their minds. It's interesting. When this happens in Matthew 22, there's a little thing that happens right before it. So Jews are just like us. They, uh, and you may be Jewish, so I just excluded you, but we're all the same. They get together with people who think like they think, and believe like they believe, and then form a little club. That's what we do. This is why all of your friends agree with you, because you've run off everybody that has a different opinion than you. <laughs> and so we all get together, and we say, that's what I think. Is that what you think? And we say, yeah, that's, I'm, oh, you're just like me, and everybody else is like me, but not really at all. Your neighbors aren't. You just don't hang out with them. And so the Jews were the same way. The Pharisees thought some things, and there was another group of Jews called Sadducees. And they had a very different set of theology and doctrine. <clears throat> they didn't believe in the resurrection at all. In fact, this is very common in Jewish theology, that this is it. You, what you see is what you get, and there is no more. It seems very strange for Jews to believe this, but that's very common. Sadducees believed that, that there was no resurrection at all. And they cornered Jesus and had their own little test with Jesus. And this was the test that they laid down with Jesus right before this happens. They corner Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, Moses says that if, um, if there is a man and, and he has a brother and his brother passes away, that it's up to that man to marry the widowed sister-in-law and provide for the family, provide financially, provide an heir, pretty much make her a part of the family and take care of everything. It's true that Moses said that. I know it's pretty weird, isn't it? Can you believe some of the things that are in the Bible? And so then they had a question for Jesus based on what Moses said. They said, we know a family that has seven brothers and there's a brother who marries a woman and, and then he dies and then the other brother steps up and, and so it goes on seven different times. What an unlucky family this is. And they all marry the woman. It's the basis for a very uh, unheard of play on Broadway called uh, Seven Brothers for One Bride. And maybe you've not heard of it. Um, so they asked Jesus, so when they all get to heaven, who's married to who? 
This is the equivalent of how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? This is the, the trivia of religion that consumes theologians who love to discuss things that don't matter at all. And this is what they do. So is it really a question of what matters most? In fact, it's not at all. It's a, it's a grand distraction to keep us from wondering why is it so hard for us to love our neighbor? What does God really want me to do with this sense of emptiness inside? What if I'm spending my life for things that comfort me or bring me joy or pleasure, but it makes no difference in the scheme of legacy and history? Those are the questions that keep you up at night. But it'd be much more entertaining if we just turn on Netflix or debate theology that nobody cares about. And Jesus looks at these people, the Sadducees, and this is what he says to them. Jesus replied, you're in error for two really important reasons. One, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You know neither. It's an incredible answer to a very real question that was being debated by theologians that don't care about really the things of God at all. And so when Jesus in Luke 10 is asked this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the authors told us the gospel of Luke written by Luke, the physician says he stood up to test him. The furthest thing from this teacher's mind, this religious expert is what matters most, but it's the very first thing on Jesus's mind. And he wants to have a discussion about things that matter. He's inviting Jesus into a debate and Jesus wants no part of it. In fact, almost every occasion in the Gospels when this question comes up, Jesus doesn't play, you know, riddles and cloaks truth with the people in the discussion. He tells them plainly some things. In fact, a little bit later in Luke 10, part of this same discussion, he's about to tell the most obvious and plain spoken parable he ever told. And it is like a, a two by four to the head. That's next week. But Jesus, I know you really want to come to church now, don't you? Jesus is going to talk about what matters most. Because Jesus wants you and your life and your heart to be focused on that as well. And so this is the occasion when Jesus answers with a question. He gets asked a question, and then he answers with a question. And he does so in a very thoughtful way. He's not playing tricks on the man. He's not being elusive. He's just having a conversation with him. And Jesus says this. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Well, this is the question that every Jewish theologian, uh, no matter of what stripe or color, this is what they all are wondering and debating. And when Jesus asks this, you would think that the answer might be obvious or that it's not really a significant debate that he's inviting Jesus into, but it's incredibly complex, the answer to this question. The law of Moses is involved. When we think of the law of Moses, we think Old Testament maybe. And, and maybe we think, well, I, I, the Ten Commandments. And if we were trying, most of us could think of, I don't know, eight of the Ten Commandments probably. With a little help or phone a friend, we can come up with all ten. And so we, we know the law of Moses, you know, is I think I'm supposed to not murder, those kinds of things. The Ten Commandments. But the Jewish theologians, of course, they know there's so much more to it. In fact, when you read the Torah it was finally determined after many years that it contained 613 commands. 
And they range from, you shall have no other gods before me, all the way down to, you should not wear clothes that involve or connect or weave more than two kinds of fabric. And so the theologians are a little stuck by all of this. I mean, if you're going to play along with them, you have to ask the same questions they asked. Which of the 613 commands are not important? Which are the ones that Jesus would say, or any Jewish theologian, you know, of the 613, there's how many that you can just decide aren't important or not worth listening to or paying attention to. I mean, most people would say, that might have been the 614th, but if God left it off the list, you're good. You don't have to pay attention to it. You don't even know it. But of these, I don't know. I mean, how do you decide it's not important? If God said it, if God had it recorded, if God included it, well, they're all important. But how many of you can you even keep in mind at one time? How many do you even know? And even if you were speaking to somebody who was an accomplished Jewish man or woman who had probably memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, word for word, even they would struggle with this idea. How many of these can you keep in mind while you're going about your life? How how do you not find yourself falling short over and, I I mean, can you even focus on at one time If God bothered to put them in there, aren't they all important? So the man gives an answer. 613 commands he can choose from. And this is the answer he gives. The man answered, in fact, this is worth us saying together as well. Are you ready? Here we go. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This answer is an absolute miracle. 613 commands. Let me give you some context and let me help you understand how absolutely incredible this is. First of all, after Jesus hears the answer, Jesus says, which is, I can't imagine the mind of the man. Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's, that's amazing to get that from the Messiah, right? It's pretty high praise. You know, that time you went to the board and did a math problem and got it right, you know? I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying you answer correctly? Not only that, when you look at these two things that the man pulled out of the Torah, they're not even in the top 10, are they? Not even in the top 10. Not even a part. And you could say, well, they're kind of represented in the first few commandments. Well, sort of, kind of, but not really. This first section is called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so you may not know much about the Torah, but that comes after the Ten Commandments were given a first time, after slavery, after they came out of Egypt, before they go into the promised land, and the Ten Commandments are given a second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then Moses kind of sums it up by including this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is what the man pulls out of the Old Testament, out of the Torah. Not only that, this other little tidbit down here about loving your neighbor as yourself, it's nestled in the book of Leviticus chapter 19. And it's around at least four or five other commandments that probably would make it into my or your top 200 of the 613. Right in the middle, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this man pulls out both. 
This is, in fact, the answer that Jesus gives when he doesn't answer a question with a question. And he gives his answer to this question. This is the exact answer that Jesus gives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so, if you are looking for a path that's straight, if you're looking for a spiritual compass with a true north, if you're wondering what your life ought to be about in the middle of trying to climb a corporate ladder or get your business going or try to structure your family or raise kids that don't ruin the world or whatever it is that you're trying to do, this is a great place to start. And it's one that we move past fairly quickly. And so just for a moment, let's look at the other miracle that takes place. We'll, we'll save that other piece for next week. A friend will help me do that. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. This is the other miracle in this answer and in the Shema that's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love makes a very passing, quick appearance in the Ten Commandments. Apart from a little footnote in one of the commandments, it's not even in the Ten Commandments. But love becomes central. In the 1,600 years from the time that Moses receives the commandments to the time that Jesus shows up on the planet in the flesh, this becomes central to Jewish theology. It's a very big deal. In fact, this, this guidance helps us understand who God is and that there is a deity, a God, that wants a relationship with you and that it's centered around the concept of love. Well, that's an absolute unbelievable truth that God wants a relationship with you. He doesn't just want compliance. He just doesn't want you to check the box or obey the other 612 commands. He wants to walk with you in love every day. And this ought to be something that you and I spend some time pondering. What does this even look like? I mean, we wrestle with how to love each other, and we know that that has some legs to it. We, we can talk about what it means to be kind or show grace or forgiveness or gentleness to somebody else, but we don't spend near enough time pondering and wondering what does it mean or what would it look like if we showed love to God. And yet, this is the very thing that rises atop. Jesus calls it the first and the greatest commandment is to nurture this relationship that we have with God and center it around the idea of love. And it's complex, love. In fact, this is how complex it is. Jesus is answering this when he's speaking it he is quoting a scripture that was written originally in the language of Hebrew but when he speaks it out loud he is speaking it in Greek and you and I we're reading it in English that's involved this takes some time to ponder it's interesting the Hebrew word for love in our Old Testament is a lot like our word for love we use it in the same way that's the Hebrew version I love pizza and I love my wife. Very different meanings, right? But the Hebrew word for love is all-encompassing. It's the same word that you would use in the most intimate of relationships. It's also the same word you would use for an inanimate object. It is all love. All love. That has its own power. But then Jesus speaks in 
the language of his day, Greek. And when he does, this word in Luke 10 is the word agape. And it means that there is a practical and seen expression of love. And if you're married or you have a relationship with somebody that goes beyond just a casual friendship, you know how important this word agape and the expression of Greek love is. Your spouse or a good friend might say to you, I mean, I know you say you love me, but you don't return my texts. Or they might say, I know you say you love me, but you don't want to spend any time with me. And what they're saying is, I sense no agape from you. There's no kindness flowing. There's no practical expression of the love. And this is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. This is why he says the Shema, the loving God. It's exactly what's needed. Now, you may be tempted, if you grew up in a church, you may be tempted to believe that this expression of love is obedience. You might be tempted to think that. You would be wrong, but we'll fix that in just a second. But this expression of obedience, well, you might think that because there's 613 commands to do what with? Obey. Obey. That's right. And so God surely must want our obedience. But if you're a parent, then you know that you can have obedience without love, can't you? Some of your most stubborn, obstinate, hard-hearted moments with some of your kids involve full obedience and a scowl and stomping feet, and it's nothing in the realm of love. And so it can't be this. So what is it? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? Well, the first thing it must mean is that love is expressed. It's the nature of Greek love, agape love. You can say it but it must be something that you do. There has to be an expression. It has to be spoken. It has to have hands and feet and legs. It has to be expressed. It's what we did just a bit ago as a group when we sang the lyrics, praise the name, the one who paid my debt. It is a verbal confession. That's one way to do it. It could be prayed like we did a minute ago. It could be whispered. It could be uttered. It could be exclaimed. But at a very minimum, it is expressed. And that expression can happen in many different ways. For some of us, it is this moment of worship. And worship can happen here together. We worship and gather corporately to remind each other we're not alone. We're in this together. We both feel this way, don't we? Even at times when we doubt and even if you're online, part of the same body, we worship and we express our love to God. That's one, but it's only one. Sometimes it comes in the form of lament. Lament is this expression that things are not the way they should be, but God is at work and he'll use us to bring about his kingdom. I can't even believe the nature of uh, Christian toxic positivity and how it's infiltrated in churches. It feels like you can't even say that you doubt. Everything has to be amazing. God is good all the time. And I know that this is true, but I think God allows some things to happen in our culture so that Christians will watch and be aghast and say, Lord, this should not be. They should not be hungry. They should not be lonely. They should not be without so that we will feel what he feels. Lament is, it's a form of worship. It's a way of saying, 
This is how I can love God with my hands and feet with other people. It's not just worship or lament. It is a moment when we have gratitude, when we just simply in quietness express this very simple thing. Lord, I I love you. Maybe you're not used to that or used to thinking of God in a relational way. Maybe he's a distant thing to you. But God is a relational God who characterizes our relationship with him with this word of love. And often it comes in gratitude. In fact, you could just try it right now. You could just say, just the quietness of your own heart and your own mind. Lord, I love you. You should try that. Lord, I just love you. This week I was doing dishes at the sink and sliced my finger pretty good. First time it's happened, you know, that deep or that severe in a while. And, and I, well, I was mad. I was so mad. I just thought, oh, this is going to take forever to heal. And I think it was Tuesday. And uh, so I did all the things. I mean, I live with a nurse, right? I mean, I thought, do I need stitches? And she, she said no. So I trusted her. And so bandaged it up and looked a little better on Wednesday, but not much better. Thursday, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this, is, I, this is what I thought. This is what I thought. If I got a scratch on my car, it would take longer to fix it than God is going to fix my finger in. And I watched as the miracle of healing occurred as God kind of welded my skin back together. And I thought, Lord, I love you. That's just amazing. I don't even get it. That's just crazy. I mean, if I want to fix my truck, I got to make an appointment. I got supply chain things. I'm like 85th in line right now. And, and you're just going to fix my finger. That's just incredible. I can't believe it. So maybe it's gratitude. But whatever it is, whatever it is, it's relational. Whatever it is. It is you and God. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to know that love is what is at the center of your relationship with God. And this week, when you're tempted to be, to be drawn off course, or you wonder if there is a path in front of you and how you're going to stay on it, then maybe this scripture will come to mind. Say it with me. You ready? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And so, Lord, right now we come to you, this moment of prayer. And we want to, with courage, move forward down the path that you have marked for us. Lord, we know there are a lot of things to do, and and there's a world that needs mercy and grace, relationships that need tending to. But Lord, uh, forgive us for the days that we have walked ahead of you and forgot this, what your son calls the first and greatest commandment. That before anything is done, before tasks are entered into, you want us to stop, see you, know you, and know that we are seen and know that we are known. And to plant our lives firmly on these ancient words found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that Jesus repeats as a firm foundation for our life that we would love you with all that we are that your love has been given first and so we are simply returning that love to you and we want to do so on purpose, intentionally expressing it relationally with you, walking with you. 
Lord, it's on this firm foundation we begin our week. May this love be central to who we are and how we live. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.